welcome back from your break. So good to be in church with you all this morning and checking in, hearing updates. Please open in your scriptures to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. Just a moment, I'm going to be reading beginning in verse 13 through verse 22 of Mark chapter 2 in a message I've entitled, Jesus, Friend of Sinners, drawing that from the song that only we sung moments ago, but I think you'll see in the passage that Mark has recorded for us. While you're turning in your scriptures to Mark chapter 2, recently I was given a complimentary copy of uh, a high school yearbook and in this yearbook, they have a section called Senior Superlatives, Senior Superlatives, where the graduating class has categories and they vote on people whom they believe fit these categories that are then memorialized, of course, in their, uh, in their yearbook. So um, categories like most daring, um, best, uh, best dressed, uh, most likely to uh, invent time travel, um, always smiling. But there's one category that jumped out at me that was awarded to two faculty members. And as I thought about it, and I thought about these individuals that were recognized by the seniors, that means that when you hear this category, they're impact on their students' lives was not only consequential, but in their words, was unforgettable. Unforgettable. And so, if you were to turn to page 207, you would see this category of most unforgettable teachers, and then the two gentlemen recognized, Mr. Gentili and Mr. Glavicki, a government teacher and a science teacher. The passage we're about to read in Mark is unforgettable. And yet, because it's familiar, dare I suggest to you, I have certainly, I have forgotten it. And I shouldn't. Because in this passage, not only is the impactful ministry of Jesus displayed in the calling and conversion of Levi, but Christ reveals the purpose of his mission in coming in a way that he has not before revealed, and it changes everything. And so my prayer for us as I've considered it and as I've placed myself under the passage this week and reflecting on it, is that not only would the story of Levi be unforgettable for you, but you would place yourself in this story as Levi too. For it to become unforgettable, you will need as I need to see that Jesus' purpose in coming for Levi is the same purpose he came 
to call you. This is God's word. Mark chapter 2. Beginning in verse 13. Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and Jesus said to him, follow me. And Levi rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Verse 18. Now John's disciples, speaking of John the Baptist, and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding feast fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Note verse 20. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. The wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. As we consider this passage this morning, may the Lord fulfill the words of the writer of Hebrews in your heart and mine to consider Jesus more carefully. Let's pray. Lord, we pray through the ministry of your word and my limited, weak, Abilities that you would cultivate our habit of fixing the eyes of our heart more simply on Jesus Christ this morning, tomorrow, even to the end of the age. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This is an unforgettable story, true story recorded by Mark, and it marks a defining moment in Jesus of Nazareth's ministry and mission as described by Mark. If I were to summarize for your reflection and consideration and application, the point of this passage is simply this. Jesus of Nazareth calls you and me to follow him 
in order to experience the joy of a new relationship with God through serving him. We'll see the call in the interaction he has with Levi. In the two parables he gives, Jesus is clearly ushering in a new kingdom, a new covenant, even new joys through a relationship with him. But the question you and I have to ask is, am I still experiencing it? Is my joy an increasing joy in light of who Jesus is in my life as revealed in this passage, or is it a diminishing joy? Or if you're not a Christian at all, is there joy yet to be received through him? This is a passage about joy, but in order to get to the joy, we have to consider Jesus carefully. And that's what I've sought to do in serving you this morning. First point, Jesus came for, wait for it, everyone. Everyone. And we are given four clues from this passage that he came for everyone, and they all revolve around Levi. Levi. Now, some background is helpful. It's helpful for me. I hope it's helpful for you when it comes to a text like this. Most of us, if you've been in the church or in our children's ministry of any time, you know about the tax collectors in the New Testament. And it says here in our passage that when Jesus, verse 13, went out again after the victory, if you will, of the earlier verses Dave spoke of, a healing of a paralytic to demonstrate Jesus has the authority to forgive sins as perhaps he's Escaping to the sea for some respite, the crowd, it says, was coming to him, and he was teaching them again. This is not new. You're following Mark carefully like I am. This is the fifth time Jesus takes up teaching. He's teaching as part of his ministry. What is new, what is astonishing, what is startling is not his teaching, It's that as he passed by, it says, he saw, that's what it says, his eyes fell upon, he looked at Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And Levi rose and followed him. Suspend for a moment that the crowd is there and Jesus is teaching and he notices Levi Levi is a tax collector in Capernaum. And when you're considering the background of tax collectors, it's just not strong enough if I tell you they're rascals, they're scoundrels. The rabbis in 
books that recorded their reflections called the Mishnah and the Talmud, which you don't need to know what that is, actually took up how you were to interact with a tax collector, a tax collector who was in the employment of Rome, and in this case, this tax collector served Herod Antipas, king of the Jews at that time, in collecting the Roman tax. A tax collector was forbidden, even though he'd be Jewish, from going to the synagogue. Forbidden. I didn't realize that. Levi was forbidden to darken the door of a synagogue because of his profession as a tax collector. By law, a tax collector could not be a witness in court because their words were untrustworthy due to their unscrupulous character as tax collectors. They brought disgrace upon your family. Your family was shunned for having a son that collected taxes for Rome, the oppressive authority over the Jewish people. But maybe most insidious of all, they were considered ceremonial unclean. Do you know what that means? If you are ceremonial unclean, you cannot offer a sacrifice at temple. You cannot be therefore forgiven by faith through the promise of your sins. You are ceremonial unclean, and if, in Levi's case, he happened, and I'm just, I'm hopefully still on screen, I happen to visit your house or visit your dwelling and touch the door, your house was then declared unclean, just as if Levi were a leper. And what he sponsored in that moment was, it gets better. Mark gives us so few words, we read them so quickly, I'm speaking of myself, that we miss the meaning almost entirely. The tax collector's table is there at the sea where the four fishermen that have already been called in Mark chapter 2 paid their taxes. So there's Levi sitting at this table, collecting taxes by the sea. He's probably got a stack of, I don't even know what the currency is of that day. Money, like just picture Monopoly where the bank's been turned upside down. There's just money everywhere. Money. And fish, because Galileans always carry, right? cash, so they pay their tax and fish. If you've watched The Chosen, you know what I'm speaking of and dramatizing that. And some of those monies and some of those fish were probably the four fishermen that were now called to be disciples of Jesus. And Jesus, those teaching the crowd, his eye falls on Levi and he calls Levi to follow me. You, you getting the drift? Can you imagine the reaction of Peter, James, the other fishermen? There's a crowd there, but Jesus' eyes fall on Levi, and he calls him to follow me.
I was trying to go through history and figure out what would be the moral equivalent for Americans. You're a revolutionary war supporter. You're on the Patriots' side. And Benedict Arnold is coming into your neighborhood. And they, and they know he's betrayed Washington. And you invite them in your home. How are your neighbors going to react to that? They're going to be pretty upset. Or it's World War II. And you're with the fighting for the Allies. And your host family that night decides to share a moment with a Nazi loyalist and Gestapo. With you there while you're fighting the war. How would you feel about that? I don't think you'd stay for dinner. I think you'd leave. I would, if we're honest. Jesus calls Levi. Oh, and by the way, it gets better, doesn't it? Because Levi is Matthew from Matthew's gospel. How transforming an experience this was. The first gospel of your New Testament, not the earliest gospel, is Levi. Written by Levi, now called Matthew. That can only occur if Jesus is calling everyone to follow him. He's a savior for everyone. He's a savior for fishermen. We've seen that. He's a savior for tax collectors. He's going to sup in a moment with sinners. He's a savior for pastors. He's a savior for teachers. He's a savior for homemakers. He's a savior for managers. He's a savior for law enforcement officers. He's a savior for people in sales. He's a savior for people in the trades. He's a savior for hairdressers. He's a savior for divorcees. He's a savior for downtrodden. He's a savior for the abused. He's a savior for the maligned. He's a savior for the neglected. He's a savior for failures. His arms are wide open because Mark, through this story, declares... To those who are well, who have no need of a physician, I didn't come. But to those who are sick, I came. I came to call. Yeah, this is the kingdom of God flipped on its head, isn't it? If you are in the bottom of society's calculation, if you are in the bottom of the church's assessment of good people, if you just have the courage to acknowledge that in the presence of Jesus, you're going to hear his call, follow me. My challenge, probably not yours, is the longer I'm in church, I forget that I have more in common with Levi and I become more like the Pharisees and the scribes that question why Jesus is keeping company with the people that he is. It's like scuba diving. Did I tell you that Linda and I went scuba diving on our honeymoon? 
I probably told you this. I'm, I've reached an age where I forget the stories I've told, and I tell them again, and I think they're really, you know, there's like the tenth time I've shared it. And so we're at the end of our honeymoon, and to sort of mark the moment, I made this crazy-eyed suggestion, hey, let's go scuba diving. Bermuda waters are beautiful, and that required like three hours of training in the pool with the tanks, and you learn how to, I think it's called a respirator, to get the respirator in your mouth and breathe through it, and using the weights to submerge and you know, blow out the pressure in your ears. And, and I, I thought I had it down. I was, I was much bravado. Linda was more humble, as you'd expect. And she said, I think I can do this. And so we got on the boat with our other fellow vacationers, and they took us out. We were going to drop down like 100, I don't know, 100 feet about to explore a coral reef. And we were told, you know, take shiny jewelry off. There may be barracudas. And I'm like, well, I hope there's a great white, because I'd love to see a great white swim by and not get close. But, but I'll take my shiny jewelry off. And, and so we get out there, and I was one of the last one to get in the water, and Linda's already down, you know, seeing, you know, the coral reefs and the fish. And I'm still up above the water because for some reason at that moment, I believe that if I relied on the respirator, I would drown because I could feel the water kind of creeping into my mouth. And, and so I was like arguing with the instructor and fighting with him. He's putting weights on me. He's trying to drag me down. I'm pushing him off. And I come back up. And finally, he used savory language and said, if you don't let me drag you down to the bottom, you're just going to get out of the boat and your wife's going to just scoop her low. I said, all right, all right, I will do it. And I reached this like vow where, Lord, I am willing to die right now if only I can get to the bottom and prove to my wife that yes, I too can. I had to surrender. I had to trust the equipment, but I had to surrender. I think that's what it means in some ways to enter the kingdom. We have to surrender to Christ and surrender all of our good works and surrender all of our performance and surrender all of our past and bring all of our religion and say, nope, nope, you're calling me to follow you. If I am accepted, it is because of you. It's through faith in you that I will be forgiven. It's to be reconciled by you will be through your finished work on the cross. To be loved by you is to surrender all to you. But the longer I'm in the church, and maybe you're tempted this, I tend to view the gospel more like a ladder. And as I do the things God tells me to do, and I climb the ladder, I've convinced myself it's subtle, but I drift towards God's more pleased with me. I experience more favor because of my church attendance or my spiritual disciplines of prayer or scripture reading, all important, but never the basis, never the foundation of his call and the gracious gift of salvation, which is the basis of conversion. For Levi, in following him, is signaling through his actions, I am a believer in this Messiah. Because he is a friend of sinners. In Matthew 11, Levi records these. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. He's the only one of the gospel writers to record it. Come to me, 
all of you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for I am lowly and gentle in heart, and you will find rest. He's the only one. He's the only one because Levi experienced the reality that Christ is the physician who came to call sinners into his kingdom. Through believing in him. Look at the dinner then that follows. We won't take as much time with this though. It's, it's unforgettable. Verse 15, Jesus then reclines at the table of Levi. Apparently Levi decides after being called by Jesus to follow him and rising immediately to do so. He invites Christ into his home and invites his friends, tax collectors and sinners, to join them for dinner with his disciples. Verse 16, and the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that Jesus of Nazareth was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Three times in that passage, three times in that section, tax collectors and sinners is, is used. So my friends from Simeon Trust, the emphasis is unavoidable. Jesus's dinner plans not only include Levi in his home, but if you can picture it, seated on the floor around these reclining tables, he is very comfortable taking a meal with people whom the Pharisees and the rabbis have said are unclean. And you would be defiled by their presence. He's eating with them. So his presence at their, at their table, eating with them, honors them. In this culture, to, to extend table fellowship through a meal is to communicate honor in the same way when you have someone over and you make them a meal. You're communicating care and honor. It honors them. It dignifies them through your presence. That's why hospitality in the New Testament is not only a command, it's one of the most effective evangelistic strategies in the epistles. Invite people into your home and be in their homes as an expression of he's with them, so he's honoring them, he's dignifying them. He's taking table fellowship with them. And it's the religious scribes, the lawyers of the Pharisees, who say, why is he eating with them? And he responds as he often does, having heard their criticism with a clear explanation. I came to call sinners. I think those two words are two of the most hopeful words in verse 17 for us as we consider applying this first point. I came. Do you see those two words? I came. How do I, 
how do we answer this question? Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come? He came, he came, the Father sent him. He came, the Spirit has anointed him in his baptism and empowered him for his ministry and mission. He came to call sinners. He came to call people who are willing to acknowledge before God that they are a failure in light of his moral demands and they are in need of a savior who God has provided out of his great love in order that we would be reconciled to him. That is the good news of this unforgettable passage. Jesus came for everyone. Point number two, and this will be briefer. Jesus provides a new way for you and I to be reconciled to God and forgiven by God forever. Verses 18 to 22. John's disciples, the Baptist disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came to Jesus and said, why do your disciples not fast? The Baptist's disciples fast, the Pharisees fast, but your disciples, they're feasting, apparently at this dinner, but beyond this context. And Jesus answers their question, which is probably a veiled accusation or criticism, with another question, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. And then he shares two parables, one about a unshrunk cloth being sewn to an old garment as a patch, and one about new wine being put into old wineskins and and the fear that these, this new wine as it ferments will burst. What, what is going on here? Well, I guess the question background that jumps from the page is why a question about fasting to Jesus of Nazareth in the midst of a dinner that Levi is hosting where they appear to be feasting? Why... Why inquire about their practice of fasting, which is an important practice in the Old Testament, and it is carried into the New Testament. So it's not that Jesus is dissing fasting, but why during this dinner does a scribe inquire and imply that you should be fasting as we are fasting in John's, but you're feasting, of course he's feasting with people who are ceremonially unclean. Well, for the Pharisees, their practice of fasting as dictated by the oral traditions of their day was every Monday and every Thursday. They had, they had these traditions to help them keep the laws of Moses. And one of them was on every Monday and every Thursday, we will be fasting. Fasting that practice not of driving fast on 495, but of going without food was a tradition 
that was practiced as they awaited for redemption from the Lord as promised in the pages of the Old Testament. So they created these oral traditions to help them keep these commands. And this tradition was every Monday and every Thursday, we will fast as an expression of our waiting, as an expression of repentance and preparation for redemption that the Lord one day will bring. And Jesus is questioned as to why his followers don't fast. And he then does what only he can do. He changes the topic and starts to talk about a wedding. A wedding. He talks about a wedding. Verse 19, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? I'm not talking about a wedding. I'm talking about why they're not fasting. But I'm going to talk to you about a wedding because they cannot fast. They must feast because the bride groom is with them. Well, his hearers knew what a wedding was. In those times, a wedding would go on for a whole week. It was a, it was a block party. But the wedding that he, no doubt, is inferring is, is speaking of an Old Testament vision of a day where the bridegroom, God himself, is having a wedding feast with his people celebrating the consummation, the conclusion of their salvation. So why are the disciples feasting when the Pharisees are fasting and John the Baptist, the greatest prophet of all, his disciples are fasting? Why are, is Jesus talking about a wedding? And the reason is, is because he is the bridegroom. The kingdom has begun. And in my presence... For these five is fullness of joy. It was Bob Dylan, right, that had that protest song back in the day, which I don't endorse necessarily what he was protesting, but the song is considered a classic, the times they are changing. It's just as if Jesus is saying, the times, they're changing. The Messiah is here. And his presence is bringing joy to his disciples. And he, in revealing that he is the cause of their joy, the center of their joy, the core of their joy, it's appropriate that they feast, not fast. But verse 20, the shadow of the cross, days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away. He's citing a passage there from Isaiah where it speaks of how the suffering servant will be violently taken away and suffer for the salvation of God's people. And of course, we, we understand that and we, we see that in looking back through Christ's brutal death, and substitutionary death on the cross, in our place, the Lamb of God for the forgiveness of our sins, on that day, the bridegroom was taken away, if you will. And there, there was mourning. There was, if you will, fasting. But he rose again. He was victorious over the grave and death and sin. But today, for these disciples, that is not that day. Today, 
this is a day of celebration because he, his presence, his mission, and his message to them is joy, is joy. And he provides two parables that, that basically illustrate that. In other words, the Jewish traditions don't work anymore. The oral traditions of keeping fasting on Monday and have blinded you to my very presence in your life. The keeping of the law will not produce what you desire. Jesus makes it clear that it doesn't work. He is the new cloth, if you will. He is the new wine. He is the bridegroom. The gospel is a whole new garment. The gospel brings a whole new wine. The gospel introduces a whole new kingdom. The gospel brings us into a new relationship with God made possible by Jesus of Nazareth, the bridegroom. So I conclude with this. Jesus is being clear in his calling of Levi. He has come to call sinners. Jesus is being clear in his response to the scribes and the Pharisees. The invitation is, will the Pharisees join the wedding? Will the disciples of John join the feast? Will the crowd join his kingdom. Will you, will you join him? For he is looking at you through his word and my limited words this morning and calling you to follow him. Has there been a decrease of joy in your life? A joy perhaps you were one time more familiar with that now for whatever reason there has been a decrease in that joy. A hope that goes unsatisfied and therefore a diminished joy. A goal that goes unmet though you tried your best and your joy diminishes. A disappointing relationship and your May I invite you to join this wedding feast and receive Jesus and experience joy through a living relationship with him where he cleanses you of your sins and declares to you you are forgiven and frees you from fears of future judgment and secures you in the love of his finished work on your behalf so that every day you can say with the scriptures, new mercies through the bridegroom. But Christian, this passage is for us. This gospel, when it was first written, was read in the churches Paul and Peter planted among believers. Has your joy diminished in Christ since the day of your conversion? Has your joy decreased since you first received him? These disciples were characterized by joy. 
Christians should be characterized by joy. Not the absence of suffering, but joy in the knowledge that Jesus is present with me. Amen? Because he's with you because of the scandalous grace of he came to call sinners. When my joy diminishes, and it can be not a dramatic awareness, but more times than not, in the absence of an overt transgression, it is because, I imagine you are tempted to do this, I begin to smuggle in my performance into my relationship with God. My praying on Tuesday is great. It's never the basis of God's favor, joy, and love in your life. Or reading my Bible more faithfully. Great, praise the Lord, you should. But it's not the basis of his presence in your life or his joy over you. Or me, did I preach a good sermon? Which for me is just average. But was it just an average sermon? Was I faithful? Ah, that was a clunker. Or when I shared the gospel recently. Boy, I wish I could have been clear. Was the invitation as effective as it could have been? You see what I'm doing? I'm looking in. And my culture encourages me to look in. And the Christian evangelical church often encourages me to look in. To see how I'm feeling about my relationship. I'm looking up and considering Jesus saying, Jesus, friend of sinners. Called me ere I knew him. One of the primary reasons you need to study the gospel and I need to study the gospel and this church needs to study the gospel is if we're considering Jesus, then our joy should be increasing. Amen? But not only that, are you comfortable with the Levi's in your life? Not the writer of the scripture, the tax collectors. Are they comfortable with you? If they are, it is due to the grace of God changing your heart. For you and I were once Levi, and now we're sons and daughters of his. And what we have in common with the Levi's of today is they need that grace. They need the gospel. But oftentimes it's going to be through the bridge of our lives that they say, you're a Christian. You don't curse. You don't fill in the blank. And you're dignifying me with your presence. You're joining me in this moment in my home. You're, you're honoring me with your friendship. Not at the expense of moral integrity, but, but for the sake of the mission. There is a joy in heaven when a sinner repents of their sins. And we share in that, don't we? When through our lives, by God's grace, scuba divers we all be, we say to a fellow swimmer, 
surrender all. Let Jesus take you down, drown you in the depths of his mercy and love through repentance and faith in him and the gospel, and he will raise you up to new life. Put away your ladders, put away your performance, put away your religiosity, come to him. If your joy is increasing, I trust it is because it is Christ in you cultivating the habit of fixing your eye more simply on Jesus Christ and not always pouring over the imperfections of your heart. But if your joy is diminishing, consider J.C. Ryle's wise advice. Cultivate the habit of fixing your eye more simply on Christ, simply on Christ and not always pouring over the imperfections of your heart. Look up, in other words. Fix your eyes on him. Rediscover, in the words of the writer to Hebrews, considering Jesus. For he calls you and I to follow him in order to experience the joy of a new relationship with God through serving him. Then this story will become your senior superlative. It will be unforgettable because you'll realize that you are Levi, and because of his scandalous grace, he called you. You followed him, and the friend of sinners seated you at the wedding feast to drink in his presence, forgiveness, and glory. Let's pray. Lord, the gospel message, the simple message that we sung today brings us into a new relationship with you through repenting of our sins and turning to Christ and putting our faith in him. And so I pray for any of my friends here today or streaming online, turn to Jesus this moment. He loves you. He welcomes you with open arms. He delights, he delights to open your eyes to receive all that he has for you, but you must surrender all to him. I pray my friends would do that today. And in that transaction, Lord, they would taste for the first time the new wine of your salvation. And for those of us that are Christians, Lord, thank you for this passage. Make it unforgettable to us. May we never be like those in the story who are questioning Jesus as radical grace for sinners, but we be more like Levi when, when we hear the call to come and follow him, we say, yes, Lord, I follow you. I receive from you all that I need for a relationship with God. Thank you. Thank you for your coming. Thank you for your, your flawless life. Thank you for your death on my behalf. Thank you for your resurrection. Thank you that you reign and you're coming again. But now, Lord, now increase my joy in the presence of the bridegroom. 
that I might bring others to that table through the good news you have given me. Lead us in that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.